it'd be a huge engineering project over millions of years to, to move the Earth outwards. If you had asteroid-sized objects passing the Earth, each time an object passes the Earth, it steals a little bit of the Earth's momentum. With less orbital energy, the orbit widens out, so it, it moves away from the sun. So if you keep passing these things close to the Earth, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> All it needs is one mistake. <laughs> Welcome to What The If, a very special What The If, Matt. This is episode 100.0. Episode well, after, well, but now that we're into it, we're not 0. 0.0 anymore, right? We're yeah. like 0. 0.01. Exactly. And it's going very fast. It's counting up. Very yeah. the, the, the future is upon us. Episode 100 of What The If is very exciting. We've been doing this for two years, thereabouts. Yeah crazy to think about yeah incredible we should uh, really take a break one of these days and like get some sleep or lunch or something <laughs> <laughs> lunch would be a start yeah and then sleep maybe that might make okay. that'd be a good uh, what the if you could eat and then take a nap in the day imagine imagine <laughs> inconceivable imagine the future we have to celebrate a very special guest this week i am thrilled to welcome Paul McCauley to the What the If chamber. Well, How are you, Paul? Oh, I'm good, and um, I'm very embarrassed to discover it's the 100th episode because I'm pretty sure I'm not worthy of it, but I'll do my best. Not true. Uh, not at all. Not Thanks for inaugurating us to a new digit. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we're going to name that third zero after you. That's the uh, the Paul McCauley uh, zero. Uh Paul, you are a you are a professional iffer, as we call it. We call our audi our audience, our community enough. We call ourselves iffers, people who ask if. And you are a professional iffer of great renown. Yeah, well, I'm a science fiction writer, so that's that's kind of my job is to question everything and try to have a Martian viewpoint and nice. wonder what wonder one. It's not only questioning what if, but also why. Why do we do things the way? Why are things the way they are? Which I often find very is very bizarre. Anyway, when you start, start looking at all our assumptions, so that's basically my job. I used to be a scientist as well, like, like you guys, and um, that was also my job too. Is asking, well, not necessarily what if, but why if? You know, why why is that stuff the way it is? That's interesting, right? And you were you, what kind of yeah. scientist were you? I was a biologist years and years and years ago. Yeah, ah. so I was working on plant-animal symbiosis, so like coral reefs, well, very tangentially coral reefs, and uh, sea anemones and green little green hydra was my model organism because you grow it in the lab very easily in little trays, which was a lovely thing to do. And it cloned itself, so you had this natural clone. And obviously that's very good for biology because reproducibility is, is one of biology's um, big yeah. problems. So if you can narrow that down by using identical animals, that's a help. That's amazing. So that's what that's I used cool. to do, grow little, little, tiny little critters in, in trays and incubators. That was my life. 
was once there, upon a time. Yeah. Was there yeah. was there one moment in there where you thought this is like a science fiction story? Um, pretty much when I realized I started cloning things, which I did as a student project. Um, I thought, wow, this is weird because this is like it's like you, you start off with one and suddenly you've got two and then you start doing that that, that kind of four and eight if you, if you don't kill them off mm-hmm. um and uh, the next thing you know you, you know you're in into the into the marching uh, morons kind of story with the overpopulation of the dishes and the other thing i used to do was feed, i fed, fed them on um brine shrimp as well on anybody who's grown brine shrimp no you you get these little dry seeds and you put them in seawater and they patch out into the uh, magic little oh yeah that's right yeah yeah and that was kind of weird as well because they're not alive until you do that and you can do all kinds of horrible things to the they're they're not eggs they're cysts you do all kinds of horrible things which we used to do in the lab to get them sterile so you put them through all kinds of horrible chemical treatments that would kill everything you could possibly think of and since these things weren't alive, they couldn't be killed. And they you wash them very carefully, put them in the seawater, and out they come at the end of it, all nice and clean. Wow. Ready after one day, life <laughs> to be eaten by the green hydra. So wow. sacrifice to science. So, yeah. <laughs> when I think back, back about it, that's kind of weird, isn't it? But there we go. Yeah. Well, I just think so, about their experience of the whole thing. Must be yeah. quite, their science fiction stories must be, uh, they would call them documentaries, probably. This week, oh, I also want to say, just sort of for those who are new to the show, I, I should say that the the science fiction stories and, and the and the sort of the structure behind them is really one of the main inspirations for creating this show. Asking the what, what the, if I remember, if actually Paul, you can tell me is this correct? I, I believe that it was was it H. G. Wells who said. I believe that he wrote something on sort of how to write a science fiction story and sort of said, you begin with one big, the big if, he called it, if I have that correct. Ah, uh-huh. That's sort of in, in um, uh, would you say that's how, that's sort of the first, well, any, any book I read on writing science fiction, they would always start out with, ask one big thing. Yes, but, that's the classical thing, yeah. yeah. One big change, one big change, what if? Martians are real, and, and and everything follows from that for all the worlds. Right. And so, what if you could make a man invisible? Right. And, uh, yeah. And then capers and fun ensue. That kind of thing. Yeah. So it holds up. It's slightly more complicated these days with modern science fiction because we have the kind of what John Brenner called the happening world in Stand on his novel Stand on Zanzibar in which it's not just one thing, it's lots of things happening at once. And Stand on Zanzibar is an exemplar of that because it's many voices and many situations and many angles of an overpopulated, media-saturated world, actually very much like our present. So quite a prescient novel. Um, so we kind of, although the, that classic what-if thing is, does produce some extremely strong stories that have held up, you know, us, we're talking before we set up about 2001 A Space Odyssey. What if aliens had visited the Earth before modern humans have evolved? And everything follows from that. They, you know, we have the aliens interfering with human evolution or pre proto human evolution. You have them leaving the monoliths behind. That all follows from that one question. So, yeah. Great. Yeah, it's still a strong thing. And then hard SF, which is really my favorite kind, what they call it now. 
is is this oh they still call it hard sf i i have a bit of a problem with it because i kind of get accused of writing it a lot because i put science in the novels i teach i treat it try to treat it fairly seriously what's your objection to uh, well two things first of all hard makes it sound like it's difficult ah okay <laughs> that's that's like the main objection and the other one is like the the, the pornography of science one let's not go any further with that yes exactly <laughs> exactly it, it, it's a it, it implies it's a kind of male thing and it's science is certainly not a male thing it's a human thing it should be for everybody so it's kind of it kind of narrow science down if you're not careful people sort of say well that's that's a kind of pure and it's also seen as a kind of purist thing as well so it's for like the purists the real real head cases of science fiction you know right. but it's not I, I i want to think it's you know i'm not writing just for a narrow audience i want to write for everybody and i want to put, put lots of things in there to in the in the stories and the novels to in interest all kinds of people so it's not just about science although i can go crazy with the science as well i've got to restrain myself it's also <laughs> interesting yeah, we're going to get to our, our big if for this week, but I just want to mention you you have a story currently out in um, anthology or a collection. I don't know if you call it an anthology, a collection of new works. Anthology. Yeah, anthology by the MIT Technology Review called Twelve Tomorrows, in which I suppose you and and all the other authors were asked to write a story based on some contemporary issue. Mm. Which is kind of what you do anyway, I suppose, in, in science fiction. But it's a fast, it's a fabulous collection, edited by Wade Rausch. Do you know Wade? Yes, I, I actually met Wade. Was, um, there was a science fiction convention in Boston a couple of years ago, and uh, he came over to meet uh, a couple of his authors who were there, including me. So that was nice because you don't often. I mean, I, I'm in Britain, uh, and um, you know, you don't often meet the your American editors. So it's lovely when you do. Yeah, fantastic. And I see Wade has a, um, a podcast called Soonish, which uh, we should check out. So, in our yeah, brain, so. yeah. Good. wonderful. And we'll talk at the end also uh, about your upcoming novel, which is the inspiration for today's If. What the if? The sun has turned into a white dwarf. What would be the first indication that we know something is wrong. Well, the sun is mostly made of hydrogen, which is lighter than helium. So helium sinks down into the sun's core. It makes the core denser. And as the core gets denser, fusion reactions get faster. So the sun gradually gets hotter. In a billion years, it'll be about 10% hotter than it is now. Oh, wow. So that's interesting. When I yeah. think of the sun dying, I think of it running out. So yeah. therefore getting colder. But what you're saying is actually it's going to heat up and heat up and heat up. Yeah. It will eventually get colder, but all sorts of catastrophic stuff will happen before then. And before that happens, while it's still on the main sequence, it'll get warmer, it'll get hotter. Yeah. So we have to deal with increasing heat, which is what we're doing now with climate change, kind of. But this is like more serious because it's, it's the sun. So you have to think of already we're, we're having trouble dealing with climate change and, 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 and temperature, keeping the temperature down. There's all kinds of talk about things we should do and maybe geoengineering. Yeah, people should talk about that. Like we should. Yeah. Not only should we do global, should we correct global warming if we can anyway for our own survival. But by the way, the sun is going to make everything hotter anyway. We need to yeah. <laughs> get ourselves down. Oh, yeah. but we're talking. Of course, we're talking different timescales. I mean, we're talking in, in climate change. We're talking in 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 human lifetimes. 
uh, it's, it's it's somebody I can't remember who it was said that it's a, it's a geological age compressed down into a human lifetime. But that that's about how long it takes a government to do things. I would think exactly. And this is the problem. <laughs> this is the problem because it's and 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 things are happening even now faster than we thought they were. You know, the the ice is melting at the North Pole faster. The permafrost is 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 melting in Siberia and and Canada and Alaska faster than everybody thought it might be mm-hmm. the glaciers in greenland disappearing faster i don't know if you saw that photograph of the dog sled going through what looked like an enormous infinite lake of blue water it was riding over ice mm-hmm. in greenland that should be ice and wasn't yeah. so at the top surface was water wow wow so all that stuff is, is happening uh, i'm an old guy born in 1955 and back then in 1955 carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere were something like 310 parts per million a bit less than that now they're what 408 parts per million so well, in mm-hmm. my lifetime bang you know enormous amounts of carbon dioxide appeared in the atmosphere it's all my fault through all my <laughs> fantastic global lifestyle <laughs> being in concord all the time to this stuff right but so the the white dwarf heating that you're talking about would be uh, so global warming or climate change as we're talking about it is is due to things happening here on the earth right yeah, you're talking about decades, centuries yeah. that's right so this would be different because it's the energy coming in from the outside right coming yeah. in from the sun okay yeah and well what does that 10 percent increase look like here on the surface of the earth um, if nothing is done, if we're, uh, if we're still around or we're not around and nothing is done, it means we'll get what's called a moist greenhouse effect. Do you remember all the speculation about Venus being this perpetually wet, jungle-covered planet, mm-hmm. yeah. sure. which persisted right up until the time that the first probes arrived at Venus and mm. discovered, nope, uh. it's a blistering hot, held planet. You know, the dense atmosphere, sulfuric acid, rain falling through it to a surface that's um, hot enough to melt lead, et cetera, et cetera. So all this idea, all, all these ideas, lovely ideas of dinosaurs crashing through giant cycads in the perpetual rainstorms that featured very heavily in science fiction stories. Ray Bradbury, Arthur C. Clarke and so on did all these variants on that kind of idea of venus and at the time that was scientifically acceptable so not yeah. that long ago again lifetime you know in, in my lifetime all this has changed so it would be that kind of old-fashioned venus on earth it would be a hot on earth a yeah. hot moist greenhouse effect maybe like the carboniferous period which was also mm-hmm. hot and moist that moist greenhouse atmosphere sounds also like what my understanding is of how howard hughes liked to live <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so when so when you say um, hot and moist, are you talking like Miami hot and moist, or as you say, Jurassic hot and moist? Jeez. Oh, I think yeah, Jurassic. Well, Jurassic, yeah, Jurassic hot and moist. Yeah. Okay. So Florida, Florida in summer, definitely. I've been in Florida in summer, and they kill me. I'm not used to it. <laughs> Washington D.C. also. All over the earth, everybody be walking slow and using paper fans to keep themselves cool. And it'll, I guess there'll be a lot of cloud cover. I mean, uh, the, the, uh, there'll be giant rainstorms because, of course, the more heat there is, the weirder the weather gets, which they're experiencing now. So more typhoons. Gosh, gosh you know, ev- everything that we uh, 
experience at extremes will be like normal. Wow. So that's where we're, that's where we're heading in a billion years for the Earth, just because the sun gets 10% hotter. And it'll continue to get hotter. I mean, if we're lucky, it won't trigger runaway global warming that Venus got, and it won't bake everything. So what's the hottest it gets before it starts to cool? Oh, well, um, we have to fast forward to like 3.5 billion years in the future. Then the sun will be 30% hotter than it is now. And that'll be warm enough to start boiling the oceans on the Earth. Oops. So this won't be good news, right? That's even hotter than Miami. So, so what do we do about that? I mean, obviously, you can't live on a planet where the oceans are boiling. Because the problem is, once it's that the stuff is in the, the all the, all of the water is in the atmosphere, it starts leaking away because it's still start disassociating at the top of the atmosphere, and the hydrogen will disappear off. And this, which is exactly what happened. Well, kind of what happened in Mars, kind of. I'm going to jump right forward to the white dwarf stage. Humanity has survived. If it's a, it survived its own foibles and survived all a lot of uh, dangers: the uh, the boiling, of, the heating up of the sun, the boiling of the oceans. The yeah, the sun expanding hugely. It occupies the orbit of Venus when it becomes a red giant. Oh wow! Okay, that's before it becomes a white dwarf. Well, I'd like to play out the moment where we the white dwarf comes to be. We meet humanity right before that. Is it in red? giant stage it takes takes some i don't know 100 million years 120 billion years as a red dwarf if earth hasn't been moved it will have been vaporized by then because because the the, the red giant in, in, in the latter stages if it didn't eat the earth when it first expanded it, it would have vaporized the earth by then so you have a problem of no earth unless you've moved the earth so I guess one what if what what if we you know our ancestors or something like you know something like us was still around and they were they were wondering what to do about this inevitability? Would there be any warning that it's coming? Well, I guess if, if, I guess if they're they're, they're they're out in they could measure the accumulation of, of, of helium. I guess there are ways of doing that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's. I mean, because they're up close. I'm not sure if it's predictable when you're looking at a, a star in, in, in the red giant stage to know when it's going to do its thing. Astronomers may correct me and say, yeah, sure, we know this. This is why we watch out for these things. So it's, it's like death and taxes yeah. on, the, in, on a stellar scale. <laughs> we know it's going to happen, you know, and it's ne inevitable. Yeah. Unless you are engineering it, I mean, you can start adding hydrogen to the sun. But the problem is then you're adding mass to the sun, so it's going to get bigger. Once it gets bigger, it gets hotter again. I mean, you have to have a huge source of hydrogen as well because the sun's, I can't remember, I don't know what the mass is off the top of my head, but it's mm -hmm. big, right? We right, right. all agreed the sun is bit, pretty big. It's most of the solar system. <laughs> Isaac Asimov said, said the uh, solar system was the sun and Jupiter plus debris. Ah, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Or debris. Right. I think you used to guys say debris. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, you know. This change is going to be radical and fast what do we have to do to prepare for going for furry going white dwarf now, the, the shift from red giant to white dwarf does that also mean a tremendous drop in temperature yeah suddenly after millions of years in minutes you get enough helium accumulating at the um core and it, it it's 
And I don't know what this actually is, but it's called degenerate helium because it's under tremendous pressure. That degenerate helium converts to carbon, all of it. Well, 40% of the sun's mass is suddenly carbon. And it's called the helium flash. It starts shrinking and it shrinks down to from a red giant to something that's about 10 times its current size. Wow. And it starts, it starts pulsating, it's unstable, it starts throwing off material, and eventually you're left with this core, which is, is, is the white dwarf. Yeah, white, dwar white dwarfs are cool, so, and they're cooling, so they, but they do it very slowly. But I, I don't think there's any, much, any fusion going on anymore, so it's all like residual heat. Some of it's the heat from when it shrinks, so it, it, as things shrink, they, they heat up because stuff gets packed in together, you get friction. Astronomers go, always oh, getting it all wrong, but it's roughly that. But white dwarfs basically <laughs> get the long lived things that cool very slowly. So you've got this small, very dense object, which is basically a stellar core cooling away very, very slowly. If we're on a platform, let's say at the orbit of Mars or Jupiter, we survived the, 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 the frying by the red giant. Right. Is the temperature going to suddenly drop within those minutes as well? Not within those minutes, but it's going to drop over the millions of years. And since we've, we've taken billions of years to get to that point of watching what happens, um, watching the sun go through all that stuff, and watching the Earth die slowly as well if we don't do anything about it. All, right. all, that, all sorts of other terrible, cool things happen on the Earth as well, by the way, because of the sun's extra heat, for instance more rocks weather out, so more silicates become available and they soak up carbon dioxide. And, oh, that's great because we've got a big problem with too much carbon dioxide at the moment. Yeah. But the problem is they soak up, it'll soak up eventually all the carbon dioxide. So it'll start getting to the point where photosynthesis can't happen. Okay, so my biologist hat here, there's two kinds of, well, there's several other kinds, but there's two main kinds of green plant photosynthesis. There's, there's other bacterial kinds. C3 and C4, they're called. C3 has a very definite cutoff limit with carbon dioxide concentration. Below that concentration, it can't function. C4 plants, like, so those, those, are, th those are things like trees and all the kind of stuff that we have in, in temperate climes, except for stuff like grass. Grasses and other plants, a lot of tropical plants, do C4 carbon fixation. So they could keep going after that. But eventually they'll stop as well because the carbon dioxide concentration all drops so low. And with no plants, you'll have no animals. Oh, yeah. oh dear. You know, plants are at the base. So there's another what if. What, how will we stop that? How will our ancestors keep that going? Yeah. And you'll be back to bacteria, which is bacteria were like for, for most of the Earth's life was life on Earth as bacteria. Bacteria, bacteria, yeah. archaebacteria, yeah. uh, blue-green algae, all these, all these little tiny things that we don't pay much attention to unless, one, unless you know, one of the bacteria makes us sick or something, then we get cross. <laughs> you know, it, yeast grows on our cheese, and the, you know, too much yeast grows on something in our fridge and becomes a science experiment. We <laughs> revenge of the unicellular organism. In this whole process, what's a moment? you would you really would like one of the moments you would most like to experience wow. it, it, on any time scale like maybe you know if it's okay if it's like well since well the the, the helium flash would be the thing because it happens in an observable time 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure what radiation it puts out. So there might be this burst of radiation. This, yeah. would, this would not be comfortable. Um, as I say, I don't know what the light would be like. I don't know if it's like 100,000 hydrogen bombs going off at once. But there's a lot of energy involved anyway. So there would be this big, I guess, light flash and stuff like that. So that would be nice to observe, as I said, for a nice, comfortable distance. Right. Out where the comets lurk, frozen, you know, out, out beyond all, all the planets, beyond Pluto. So maybe beyond Pluto, Pluto is a kind of cool place to hang out, we've discovered as well. So somewhere around there. Yeah, so that would be that'd be interesting to do. But it'd be nice to it would be interesting to visit the you know, from the point of view as a biologist, it'd be interesting to sort of go forward a, a, to that um that moist greenhouse, yeah. you know, and, and and see what see what things have evolved. And who knows, you know, when I say carbon dioxide, it will be a limiting factor, but Stuff will have plenty of time to evolve, and who knows what else will evolve in that time. So if we don't interfere with things, if we don't start engineering life, which we're doing now, you know. But then again, it might be cool to find out what stuff we've engineered. So it'd be a very odd landscape. I mean, it might be a mixture of stuff we've engineered. There might be some machine life knocking around, and there might be sort of our descendants trying to scratch a living and and wondering where the hell all those good times went. <laughs> You know, Venus yeah. has a lot of carbon dioxide. Should we move yeah. there when this starts happening? Well, the problem is that Venus is close to the sun and it'll get eaten up. But um, certainly people have talked about geoengineering, geoengineering Venus. I mean, there are various, various uh, ways of doing it. I mean, if you can convert the carbon dioxide uh, catalytically, you can have like a limestone rain onto the surface. It's all the carb it turns That's into cool. carbonate, falls out. Whoa. It would actually be livable. I mean, actually, Venus theoretically is is at least as livable as the Earth. I mean, it's, it's it's in a weird orbit as well. The only problem, the other problem is its its day is is longer than its year because it's weird orbit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is like a problem. I mean, you know, we've all had days where they seem like years, but <laughs> Venus literally does have a day that's longer than a year. So you know, if you're on the so you get these extreme temperature differences, so all kinds of of, of weird weather would happen. You'd have to compensate for that. What is a limestone rain like? I call it a limestone rain. It wouldn't really be that. It'd be like, it'd be like you know, if you live in a hard water area, you have those in the States, right? You know, boil a kettle, you get the lime scale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The idea is you can lock stuff into rocks. And, and, and if, if, if you could do it with microorganisms floating in, in a habitable layer, then there is a theoretically a habitable layer in the upper atmosphere of Venus. Where the temp, where the pressure is one, is the same as the uh, pressure on the surface of the Earth, the, the air pressure, and uh, the temperature is not sort of full of not lead melting, and it's not full of sulfuric acid. If you if you have stuff living there and, and catalyzing it, you slowly catalyze your way down to the surface until the pressure is is, is down to one bar because you've locked all the carbon dioxide away. There are various other ways of doing it apparently as well, and this. Hundreds and thousands of hydrogen bombs stripping off the atmosphere of <laughs> Venus. <laughs> big, big meteors knocking through, but it, 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 it knocking away the, the atmosphere as well and stuff like that. So yeah, you could terraform it, but the problem is, by the time it gets the sun gets to red giant, Venus will be definitely be within the radius of the red giant, so it'll be melted and evaporated and destroyed. So an, another what if would might be what if we could move the Earth. Yeah. Right. Out of its orbit. Suppose we can move planets. 
Yeah. We've already talked about moving asteroids, you know, this idea of asteroid mining and getting an asteroid. Some, some asteroids are basically all metal, you know, and uh, if you want a lot of chrome or iron or whatever, get one of the, the, those asteroids that pass close to the Earth and nudge it so it goes into orbit around Earth or better still in orbit around the moon or sits in the L4, L3 points where gravity of the moon and the sun and the Earth balance out and things just can orbit around those points. So is that how you would move a planet? Would you maybe get a small thing that moves a bigger thing? Bigger thing? In other words, you do some sort of billiard game. Yeah, exactly. You'd uh, have to. What could possibly go wrong there? I mean, I. You know. Well, okay. <laughs> There's an obvious, <laughs> obvious idea what could possibly go wrong. But you'd have to. I think it would take up if you had asteroid-sized objects passing the Earth. Each time an object passes the Earth, it steals a little bit of the Earth's momentum. Uh-huh. Uh, okay, and orbital energy. So it, it, with less orbital energy, the orbit widens out. So it, it moves away from the sun. So if you keep passing these things close to the Earth, and this is what if, yeah, what could possibly go wrong? Right. <laughs> you can see <laughs> you'd have to do this billions of times with those, those tiny bodies. Yeah. And all it needs is one mistake, you know, and it would take, it, take a long time as well. So it'd be a huge engineering project over millions of years to, to move the Earth outwards. Well, that's the time scale we're thinking about for yeah. the sun. Though, so, right? Yeah. So you, you'd think, well, okay, the sun's getting towards that warmer time. Now is the time to start our billion year Earth moving project. So let's start moving those those Kuiper Belt objects, you know, and comets inwards. What could possibly go wrong? And at the same time, we'll just billiard the Parson Venus and strip some of the atmosphere off and we'll start, you could move Venus out as well. You might, you know, you could think of planetary engineering, you know, with Venus and Earth as co-planets orbiting each other. I don't know, I don't know how stable it would be. So you'd have two, two planets and what would happen to the moon? We'd have to lose the moon, sorry. <laughs> At some point, in the, we'll lose the moon anyway because the moon's edging outwards very slowly year right. after year. It's, that's one of the experiments, the only functioning experiment that Apollo 11 left behind that's oh. still going is that laser reflector on the surface. <laughs> yeah. The moon. Yeah. 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 I like it's this idea of moving the Earth so that you could actually, if you knew the rate, mm -hmm. if, you, if you got the, a good enough rate, you could probably move out from the sun as it expands in such a way that you maintain the same temperature on the Earth. That would be a yeah. complicated equation, but, you know, if you made it this far. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a clever thing to do? Yeah. 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 Keep everything just as it is, you know, the Earth as a preserve. That's right. And do all the wild, wacky experiments with life on Mars <laughs> and uh, Venus and, I don't know, Titan eventually, I guess, and all the other places. Ganymede. I don't know what happens to you. I guess Europa's ice shell would melt eventually as well. Oh, get right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. But then it'll, start, then it'll start evaporating because Europa's kind of a smallish moon, so its gravity would, wouldn't be enough to keep the um, keep an atmosphere, and so the uh, water would start to evaporate. You know, you get a water atmosphere, but it'll start being beaten up by the sun and stripped away by the solar winds. But still, you know, there might be ways of, of dealing with that as well. So there's all these kind of fun things you can do. Although I'm mindful of that warning in 2010 that you wrote right. is not for you, right. you know, humans. Have everything else you want, puny humans, but leave Europa alone. That's right. <laughs> yeah, whatever's in Europa is going to get, you know, its shell will come off and it'll be exposed. Yeah, yeah, that might be fun. That might be like giant 
European octopuses or whatever. I don't know what's mm-hmm. down there. Probably not. Probably little boring vent bacteria, but well, boring. <laughs> I mean, fantastically interesting because of where they are. Yeah. But with a billion years, you know, who knows what they might evolve into. Mm-hmm. So you leave them alone. Again, you know, the whole thing about whether you start interfering or not. But my guess is because of the way we are, we've already kind of interfered with the earth quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Right. Start, yeah. we, we, you know, we don't have a good legacy of that. <laughs> we're going to leave a legacy elsewhere as well. Just as interesting. Let's I, put it that way. I am yeah. sure that in the past, if, if panspermia is correct, is a correct theory, then somebody wrote a book before there was life on earth that said, leave earth alone. Earth is not for you, and it yeah. clearly has been violated, terribly, yeah. trashed, vandalized. Yeah. And they're going to be very upset when I come back, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's the old Robin, Robin Williams joke about God turning his back and coming back after a million Hole in the ozone layer? I, what are you guys monkeys doing? You know? <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't there when I last looked. <laughs> so, uh, Matt, what's the, what's the moment you would most like to... Uh, experience maybe let's see here paul do you have a sense of how visible the the white dwarf remnant would be from the earth um if the earth was still in its orbit i mean yeah. it was still i'm still pretty sure it'd be the brightest object in the sky uh, i was wondering if there would be a moment at which it would no longer be the brightest brightest object in the sky i might like to see that see it fade out well, we're talking a lot of billions of years. That would be. Yeah, I'd have to be very patient. Yeah, you would. Yeah, sort of sitting there, sipping beer, you know, right. getting up, barbecuing something, coming back, right. looking up. Nope, <laughs> still bright. <laughs> well, that sounds like a number of nights that I've uh, gone out to witness yeah. astronomical events. So <laughs> it's pretty. Yeah, to see to see stars in the skies, like with with the sun still in it, like I guess would be is the view from Pluto or something would be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Though even at Pluto, you see the sun is still the brightest object in the sky. Well, yeah, it is actually. Yeah, so it's it's still it's not like any other stars. There's too many science fiction writers, probably me actually as well, have said you know the sun shrinks to just another star. You have to get a long way from the sun before it becomes just another star. Yeah. I mean, there's still enough energy uh, 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 on Pluto uh, on Pluto for the sun to drive weather stuff. You know. Stuff is happening on Pluto. Certainly, stuff is something happening on Triton, uh, on Neptune's moon, which is a lot closer than Pluto. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But there's enough to drive. There's, an, sun, there's enough s- sunlight falling on Triton to drive those geysers that eject out from certain areas in Triton and produce these little black ink strokes across the surface, which Voyager, dis- one of the Voyagers, I can't remember which one, discovered. Absolutely. Uranus and, and Neptune, I'm hoping we both, those are both planets that have been uh, somewhat neglected in terms yeah. of uh, getting their own orbiters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lastly, then, this is a subject you explore in your upcoming novel. And what can you say, can you reveal anything about that in terms of how they, is it, what's going on there with the white dwarf? How are they dealing with it? Okay, well, this is this is like going back to the start of the, uh, the podcast with the one big what if, right? So this is one big, this is actually one big what if. And it actually came from a, a science paper, uh, Dyson Spheres Around White Dwarfs, which 
by Ibrahim Samiz, I'm reading this up, and Salem Ogre wrote. And they, do you know what Dyson Spears, Sphere is? Yes. A Dyson yeah. Sphere, you construct around a star so you can use all its energy. If you built round, one around the sun at Earth orbit, you could use, you wouldn't waste any of the energy because it would be always be falling on a surface, a usable surface. The problem is you'd have kind of minor problems like how would you build it? Because you need a lot of stuff. So you'd have to deconstruct the rest of the solar system to supply the, <laughs> the materials. The shell would only be like a meter thick, but it'd have to be incredibly strong. Mm. So you'd have a metamaterial problem there as well. And you'd have to st stop yourself falling off the inner surface. Yeah, you have to do all kind of cunning things. Okay, but these guys worked out that if you take a white dwarf, like the sun is going to evolve into, you could build a smaller Dyson sphere around the white dwarf. And because the white dwarfs are smaller and cooler, you can build it closer in, so you don't need as much material. Mm. You could deconstruct the moon and, and, and produce a meter-thick shell. Oh, wow. Of this right. magic material, okay? Right. And it wouldn't be as big as, as a classic Dyson sphere, which is, you know, many billions, trillions times the Earth's surface area, but it would still be like 10 to the 5 times the surface area. So 10 to the 5 Earths. So, oh, so 100,000 Earths. It's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. And the trick is you could live on the outside. So the problem with the Dyson sphere is you can't see stars. Astronomy is you'd have to go outside <laughs> to do <laughs> yeah. astronomy. Right. So on this sort of white dwarf Dyson sphere, you'd have the, you'd have the white dwarf on the inside warming it up. And then on, you'd live on the outside, just as you do on a planet. Uh -huh. You can sculpt it just like a planet does. You can have big oceans. I mean, really big oceans. Wow. Um, big continents or small, you know, you can map out many worlds over it. And so that was my idea would be like, what, what would be like to live there? So live on, you're basically living on a, a, a man-made, in a way, planet that has yeah. the sun in the middle, in the core. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's left of the sun? In the middle, wow, yeah. So the only cool. problem, the, the only problem, and be, and also the you wouldn't have to worry about falling off because you're close enough to the start the white dwarf to have one one g of gravity pull. So oh, you cunningly build it at that <laughs> limit. That's right? a good plan. <laughs> the the only problem is you'd have no light source, right? Mm -hmm. Because the sun's on the the white dwarf's on the inside, so you'd have to figure out some kind of way of, of yeah. producing light and. I don't know. Little, Lots of little, solar powered LEDs. Little, yeah. little, yes, solar powered LEDs, little fusion plants or whatever, set fire to some asteroids or whatever and then and put them around. So you'd have that problem as well. And you'd have to work out the orbits of them as well because um because the because this is an object bigger than the Earth. So if you want a day day length the same as the Earth is at the moment, you'd have to have like trains of things going around, you know. Could you not just have could you punch a hole? in the surface so that light from the sun can come out and then you have a mirror reflecting it back? Yes, you could do that too. Yeah, I'm sure you, I'm sure there are various ways it's, of doing it. It's more it. of a green solution. Yeah. More, more, more environmentally. But you still yeah, need something, right. you still need something in orbit to, to reflect the light back. But yeah, you yeah. could do that too. There are many, many ways of doing it. That'd be, that would be not the way I chose, but that would be another way of doing it, certainly, yeah. That would be the most vain civilization ever. They put a giant mirror <laughs> up that they could see themselves in. What what do you need astronomy for? We see what we want to see. Wow. It'd also be the sort of kind of surveillance society as well, because you <laughs> big giant mirrors. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Eyes in the sky. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Run with that. You can run with that. Mm.
Matt, uh, any last uh, any last questions about this? If how are you feeling? How are you feeling? This is the thing. I can't quite decide if I'm in awe of the Titanic astro engineering that we'll be doing a billion years from now or kind of depressed at the, the withering away of our solar system uh, down to a, a stellar cinder that we're desperately huddled up against for heat. Oh, yeah. We'll see. So I don't know. I don't know. Yes, I don't know if I'm in a Isaac Asimov kind of space or a uh, three body problem kind of space. <laughs> <laughs> and how about you, Paul? How does it how does it leave you feeling the end of imagining this period of time? Oh, tired. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of work. You've been living yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on, yeah, and a lot of work. And it's, it's very difficult to conceive of the kind of creatures that would be doing doing the work, not necessarily the creatures living on the surface. My idea would they be, they'd be like us as a, some kind of meat, meat fair, you know, like, let's get back to meat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have the idea that the, cre- the, the creators of this world would be like, artificial intelligence gods living away in some kind of vaporware somewhere you know in a mine the size of moons and that kind of thing but they've got a nostalgia for meat and they 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 go back and they incorporate themselves in in human things like human beings for a while to play around and have adventures so that's my idea so there's there's a possibility that they might recreate all of us as well and i don't know if that's a great thought or a terrible thought Well, maybe that's that's an interesting twist on the simulation hypothesis. Maybe that's what's happening right now. We're just, you know, yeah. we are um, we are stupid by design because the uh, the AI thought wouldn't it be fun. Imagine if you were really stupid, how would you try to live on a planet? <laughs> Let's see how ridiculous yeah. civilization It'd be hilarious. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, how how less in, least in, what's the least amount of intelligence you can get away with here? Oh no, this is what they do. <laughs> they start tracking everything. Okay, and then the audience yeah. laughs along at home. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, Paul, so the upcoming novel is called War of the Maps. Yeah. Is that right? And it comes out, you said, in... Uh... Well, it comes out in in the UK in March and, and a little later, I think, in, in the States. But there are ways of getting it, as we know. Yeah. Getting things. I still, <laughs> I still don't understand that. I, I, I find myself buying, I buy books mm. on the UK Amazon just so I can get them. Why can't they? It seems like an age where we could be releasing books simultaneously. It would be nice, yeah. Yeah. Maybe in a billion years, publishing works. <laughs> <laughs> be one of the benefits of the Dyson Sphere. Yeah. Oh, again, it's because of right, yeah. the AI, the AI, the governor they put on our intelligence that keeps us limited. Fantastic. And, and uh, like I said, the book that, uh, a book that's out now from uh, MIT Technology Review, 12 Tomorrows, has stories by you and a bunch of other wonderful writers. Will you be doing a book tour? And is there any place people will be able to see you? Do you know that yet? Oh, um, I have no idea because it's so <laughs> too far in the future for uh, my publishers to speculate. Okay. So, yeah, if I am doing any kind of tour, unfortunately, I'll probably be in the... Um, UK, not the States, but I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm now podcastable, so who knows, I might do a podcast or if I can get persuade people to host me. Yeah. Love Talking that. of which, thank you guys for the fun, fun Thanks times. for joining us. Oh, our pleasure. Yeah. Where can people find you on the internet? I'm on Twitter as Unlikely Worlds. Uh, that's probably the best place. 
to find me. Unlikely world. At Unlikely World. At Unlikely World. Paul yeah. McCauley. Now, in gratitude, by the way, thank you from us. You are going to receive a special little gift of thanks, a finger puppet <laughs> of a scientist okay. or science, perhaps science fiction character. Mm-hmm. I have some friends at a company called the Unemployed Philosophers Guild, and they have a website called Philosophers Guild. Dot com and they make all these what they say smart funny gifts for smart funny people and yeah. uh, they are hilarious so you will be receiving one of these illustrious totems of our gratitude wow well I look forward to it whatever it is yes <laughs> I'm not sure, sure it's going to be fun it will be fun yeah. it will be fun fun for your fingers and all your <laughs> friends fantastic Matt just we'll give a shout out you have a book out now also einstein's war that's right available in the uk and in america fantastic yes our website is whattheif.com you can go there and find all of our shows all 100 shows you can contact us on twitter at what the if show and if you would if you enjoyed this program. It would be amazing if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review or whatever service you are using. Leave us a review there. Put a lot of stars in it. We like astronomy, so more stars, the better. (laughs) And that'd be fantastic. And just get ready. I'm very excited, Paul, for your new novel coming out. It's very exciting. One thing about science fiction I was thinking is that the what if you ask a what if but those what ifs very quickly breed other what ifs yeah that's right they're like brine shrimp that way yeah <laughs> and so w- when we when we imagine all those it blows our mind and we scream what, what the, the if? If? 